Hi, I'm Lynette from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Nick Sutterer. Nick is the author of the LeanPub book, Trailblazer, A New Architecture for Rails. The book helps you build a complete Rails application using Trailblazer, a thin layer on top of Rails Nick built that brings a high-level application architecture, decent encapsulation, and a new code structure. In Nick's own words, the book takes you for an adventure trip from Rails code jungle to the Trailblazer beach, and involves building a complete Rails application using all of Trails, Trailblazer's goodies while exploiting the Rails way where it helps. Based in Sydney, Australia, and originally from Germany, Nick is a software developer and popular conference speaker with a particular interest in open source frameworks and software architecture. He blogs at nixda at apotomo.de, and you can follow him on Twitter at apotonic, and you can also find Trailblazer on GitHub at github.com slash trailblazer. In this interview, we're going to talk about Nick's professional interests, his work building Trailblazer, his book, and at the end, his experience using LeanPub and ways we can improve it. Um, uh, and just um, uh, before I start asking questions, um, I want to say that um, we're joined today by my LeanPub co-founder, Peter Armstrong, who's going to be asking some questions later on. So welcome, Peter. Hi. Um, so Nick, um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell me how you got interested in software and specifically what led you to um, build um, Trailblazer. Oh, um, it all started with computer games. <laughs> so I was one of the uh, one of the lucky kids who had access to computers really early. So we're talking about um, the early '80s. I was playing uh, black and white computer games. And um, I really got intrigued by the idea of making my own game. So that's how I got into programming. And of course, I've never managed to write a game. But um, I started with um, playing around with HyperCard on, on really old apples and uh, moved on C++, blah, blah, blah. And 15 years later, ended up with Ruby. Yeah, that was, that was a nice um, development. Great. Um... I was wondering, I found a, a talk online, I think it might have been in India, where you said that you wouldn't be a programmer if it wasn't for um, open source. And I was wondering if you could explain why that is. <laughs> wow, so you actually watched my talks. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, as I said, I started, um, I started programming um, following this idea of writing computer games and um, I mean I was maybe 10 years old and you were not going to write a computer game when you're 10 years old so I kept playing with lots of languages and um, started I think I started um, Perl and um, I got intrigued by this idea of object-oriented programming encapsulation even though I did not have any idea what what uh, real encapsulation looks like in a in a in um, an actual program, and I was also reading about. Um, I was reading TCP/IP Illustrated, and this will t this taught me a lot about um, layering. So I, I learned a lot about like this layer is not supposed to know about the other layer. So and I kind of saw the similarity to object-oriented programming, and I started playing with um, a widget framework written in Perl. <laughs> of course, not a single company on this planet is using it. But um, that was um, when I had my first feedback from um, from actual users or people trying it, and um, uh, so I was still I was still working as a by that time I was still working as a yeah Perl slash PHP um, web dev, but I I'm, I wasn't really 
loving um, working on other people's products only. So the open source stuff kind of gave me a new, uh, gave me some kind of new direction and motivation to to keep working in the web environment. And and it's absolutely true. If I wouldn't have discovered uh, Ruby and, and if I wouldn't have discovered all the problems and rails that I was trying to solve, I probably um, would have ended up in a different um, uh, discipline, something like, yeah, probably like a, a game developer working for uh, some awesome company and working on Assassin's Creed 500. Yeah, who knows if that would have been the better choice. But <laughs> yeah, so so when I, uh, as soon as I got into, into Ruby and uh, so... I had this little bit of experience from that Perl project. As soon as I got into Ruby, I started working on open source and people started actually using it. So, and that was um, amazing. It's, it's still amazing. So I got feedback. I got um, people telling me, hey, I forked your project and look at it. And I was like, oh, this person is so much better than I am. Uh, and uh, this is how I kept doing what I do for the last yeah, 10 years. Great, great. Yeah, that's really, it's really interesting, the experience that one can have if you get early feedback on things from people using it and what a motivation, yeah, like, what a motivator that can be. Um, so about, about Trailblazer, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what it is and why um, you built it. What problem is it solving? So the Trailblazer is, um, if, you ha if you have a, a superficial look at it, it only adds technical complexity to uh, framework that is already complex, like a Rails <clears throat> or a Sinatra or whatever. The, the goal is to add abstraction layers on top of the existing primitive, primitive not in a bad way, but it is primitive of, on uh, the MVC stack. So what Trailblazer basically says is writing or architecting um, complex web applications, and that's what we all do every day, um, is um, a complicated task. And having two or three buckets for all our code, M, V, and C, and we don't put code into views, so we only have M and C, two buckets for um, complex apps is not enough. So we need more um, layers to structure code, to know where to put certain requirements, to know where to put implementations, and to make it also a bit more straightforward how to test specific functionality. So what Trailblazer does is it says <clears throat> use Rails or use Hanami or use Sinatra or whatever as a what I call infrastructure framework. It gives us, you know, all the tasks, generators. It gives us routing. It gives us HTTP endpoints, also known as controllers. And on, on top of that, um, introduce um, additional abstractions like uh, deserialization, validation, um, callback objects and all this kind of stuff that so the um, the um, additional layers streamline our everyday task of writing um, functions for web applications and then again go back to the original uh, stack and use um, whatever persistence layer is um, desired it could be sql it could be active record it could be hanami model or rom or whatever so we basically give them abstractions from HTTP till persistence layer. And um, it was a little bit chaotic in the early days of Trailblazer because we didn't really know how to, um, how to communicate what we we're doing. But now that we have this word called high-level architecture, if people ask me what is Trailblazer, I say what, a high-level architecture. <laughs> and then they either run away and say that's weird or they say what is a high-level architecture? And that's exactly those um, abstraction layers that we provide is... Um, Here's a bit more um, 
uh, layering, more structuring, more components to actually implement um, your uh, web request. And that's what Trailblazer does. Fantastic. I think I think Peter yeah. probably has a couple of questions he'd like to like to ask about that. Sure. So um, when I was yeah, when I was reading the introduction in the first chapter of your book, um, I found myself agreeing with a lot of your parts of your descriptions of the problems that exist in Rails. Um, so I was wondering if you what you'd say the main problems of Rails that Trailblazer. You touched on it briefly already, but the main problems that Trailblazer addresses are. Um, so the thing is. I never um, wrote any gem. I never wrote Trailblazer or um, the gems. So Trailblazer is only a collection of a lot of gems I have written in the last ten years. I never wrote them just because I wanted to write gems and feel great about um, uh, being an open source developer who doesn't get paid for their job anyway. Um, I it was always tackling a specific problem, and so I mean I could go into details of all the gems now, but Trailblazer is solving the problem of um, it answers the like we said in the book a lot of times like where do we put specific kind of code so Trailers has a bucket for for any kind of um, implementational um, uh, code snippet you have so we have buckets for um, authorization authentication for um, callbacks decoupled from models and for um, for rendering JSON documents, for deserializing documents, for validating object graphs. So we have um, a handful of um, um, buckets to, 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 to put your code into. So that is a problem in Rails. I've seen in a hundred of apps uh, being solved in different ways. So every big project has a different, <laughs> basically, architecture. And there's zero conventions beyond um, how to name table names and how to name controllers because that's what Rails conventions are. They are really primitive. And so we, we give them a strong, high-level um, and really opinionated um, structure for, uh, for their code um, and their implementations. And also Trailblazer is solving um, the problem of testing in a, in a really different way than Rails. So when I write Rails applications, pure Rails, I always found, found myself wondering, where do I test stuff? Is that an action? Is that a controller test? Is that a view test? Is that a model test? Is that a unit test? Is that an integration test? So in, in, in Trailblazer, we go a completely different way. We say, decouple all the business logic into specific objects. We call them operations. So all the business logic from, uh, from deserializing the incoming data to persisting the, whatever you want to do, is happening in, a, in an encapsulated object in an operation. So we only have unit tests for operations and we have integration tests to see if the controller wiring works. So there's always, um, there's, it's always really um, clear when you write a new feature where to put the test, what to test. And um, it's also way faster because you don't have to do everything via HTTP tests. And um, the, actually, that's uh, the funny thing is that wasn't really planned, but it turned out to be a great feature that a lot of um, Trailblazer developers love, that we really have a distinct way of saying, this is what you have to test, and uh, this is how you test it, and, and that's it. So no, no thinking, oh, should I, do, should I go write another model test, or should I write another Polo test, and this, and blah, blah, blah. So we don't, for example, we don't have controller tests at all. We have integration tests, and that's it. And... Um, the third thing we solve is, I guess, 
that people learn a bit more about um, object orientation because since we introduce all those layers and all those layers are basically implemented as Ruby objects, people learn about, okay, this is how object-oriented design was originally intended. Yeah, because Rails is absolutely misleading you when it comes to object orientation. Just because we have model objects or we have a controller object doesn't mean that this is object-oriented. So um, by introducing smaller objects with limited scope of jobs, um, people learn about, okay, this is, um, this is actually closer to what, what object orientation means. I'm not saying that we are doing everything right and everything is uh, uh, the best and Martin Fowler will read um, uh, Trailblazer Code and will say, this is exactly what I thought about object orientation. No, but I think it's closer to the original idea and um, the benefit is that you have a really quick understanding of what the app is doing because every object is only doing one thing and uh, has um, probably... Yeah, has only one public method and there's no way to screw up internal state. So, um, and that's, that's what lots of people told me is that they, after, after working with Trailblazer, they started to feel what, 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 a, what a good object design looks like. Whereas in Rails, you only know I have a model and my model has 500 methods and that's called object-oriented design. <laughs> right. Um, so Trailblazer is an architectural style, but it's also a collection of gems. So for someone who is brand new to Trailblazer, can you just give a high-level overview of the different gems? But also, I'm more interested in understanding how, like, well, when you realized that you were creating Trailblazer. Because I mean, you started with one gem and then moved on, and like, I want to. I'm curious about how the how it how it evolved in your mind about what you were doing. Okay, that's a nice question. Uh, I'll start chronologically, and um, it'll all come. Uh, it'll all make sense. Because as I started writing Rails, I wanted to have um, a reusable sidebar view component or something, and I couldn't find anything. Like they told me, use partials and helpers and controller and blah blah blah. So I was basically spreading the logic over the uh, across the entire stack, and it didn't didn't feel right. I wanted to have a reusable encapsulated component I can reuse in every uh, Rails controller action and have my sidebar rendered and so I started um, working on that um, gem called cells which introduces um, what we call view models into Rails so it basically gives you components you can and the, the component all it does is it's an object and it can render a template and it can um, execute arbitrary code so basically it's a it's a partial um, an encapsulated partial the partial ha doesn't have access to the rest of the um, stack and um, so that was uh, the, the view gem called Cells. And um, Cells is part of Trailblazer, but it, it's not, um, it doesn't have any um, wiring to Trailblazer. So it, it works without Trailblazer. And it's also, um, and that's good because it's um, the most popular um, view, uh, action view replacement, or actually the only replacement for Rails. So lots of people uh, use Cells in thousands and hundreds of thousands of projects. Um, so that was my, my first gem when I, and, and I realized, okay, if there is interest in this kind of stuff, then it can't be too, all too wrong to work on addition, um, um, alternative patterns in Rails. So um, I worked on a lot of other gems. So another part of Trailblazer is um, representable and raw. That's um, basically a document parsing and document rendering um, library. So you can 
grab a document and pass it into an object graph in Ruby, and you can grab a Ruby object or an object graph, you know, nested objects, and render that into, um, let, let's say, a JSON document. So that is another um, gem I was working on. And um, so that, that's basically uh, helpful if you write document APIs like JSON APIs or XML APIs. <clears throat> I know no one's writing XML anymore, but people still have lots of questions about how to render and parse XML. So, <laughs> um, so that was, um, that, but that is again, something completely decoupled from Trailblazer, um, helping you with uh, rendering and parsing documents in Ruby. And after that, I had um, I started working on reform, which is <clears throat> basically saying we don't want to have validations in our models because sometimes I have a form that might incorporate two or three models or something that is not even a model at all, and I still want to have validations. I still want to define my fields, and so reform basically says. I'm a form, tell me what is my fields, tell me what's my nesting, and tell me what is my validations. <clears throat> and I'll help you doing the validations, and I'll help you writing those validated data, um, hashes or whatever, back to uh, whatever models you want me to. So we took the validation out of the model um, layer in Rails and put it into a separate validation layer. And so we had views, we had rendering parsing of documents, and we had um, reform the, the form object. And that's when I started to realize, hmm, so now, as, as, because also my, the way I wrote controllers in Rails changed because I was always using a form object, I was always using a view component, um, and in document APIs, I would always use the representers from the raw and representable. So um, I came up with this, thing like it was just a concept called operation <clears throat> which is now the central notion in trailblazer which is what so we, which is what wraps your business logic and uh, so operation became operation is in the trailblazer gem and that's when i came okay how did i name this uh, operation ah damn the gem name operation is already taken okay i could i could just start a new like framework like a meta framework as my friend called it ah, what, what do i call it i was looking on my desk <laughs> And there was a was a um, an old newspaper, and it said like blah 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 is a trailblazer, and I'm like, hey wait, <laughs> trailblazer is a cool name, <laughs> so I named the gem trailblazer. Put in the operation pattern, only the operation um, a gem, like the operation pattern was the only thing in the gem, and so the operation basically connects representers, connects uh, form objects, and connects your persistence layer. It's just an orchestrating object. And um, once this gem was there and the, the operation pattern became more and more clear as being wrapping your business logic and orchestrating to all the other stakeholder objects, new things popped up like uh, policy objects and callback objects and all this kind of stuff. But the, the main road was really um, cells uh, and then reform. And once we had reform, we needed a place to, to orchestrate how the form interacts with the in the other, in the outside world, and that's where operation came, and that's how <clears throat> Trailblazer kind of um, started. And then on top of that, lots of other things were added. Cool. I have one more question, and this is a really selfish one. Um, so, one thing I was curious about when I was looking at Trailblazer is, um, let's say you have an app which has a Rails legacy backend and a lot of complexity in it, but you're doing a front end that's written in, say, React. So you're, say, building like a single page application in JavaScript. Um, what parts of Trailblazer are still, because Trailblazer seems targeted, like obviously it's Rails, but also other frameworks, but it's targeted at 
web applications, right, where, you know, you're producing HTML views and stuff as well. So if you're doing something that's talking to a JavaScript application by an API, like a JSON API, like what parts of Trailblazer are still relevant, what parts are not relevant, like how does, do you still think, like, would you assume it's still a good choice for talking, like being the backend architecture of a Rails app that's talking to a single, to a more rich front end? Yeah, of course. So a lot of people do that actually. In my current project, we do the same. So we have <clears throat> we have React front ends and we have Trailblazer backends. So the only thing we do not use is the sales gem, the the gem, the view component gem, because that is supposed to render um, HTML. You can even use cells with React. Uh, for it's it kind of helps, but <clears throat> so you what do you do? You leave out the view layer and you still use uh, the deserialization validation, the persistence layer, all that stuff that Trailblazer structures in your Rails app or whatever. And so what we had, and it's pretty cool actually, is so we had this backend um, and we, in Rails and we started to, um, to port certain actions or certain functionalities into Trailblazer operations. So the, the controller in, would only delegate or dispatch to an operation directly without any logic in the controller because that's what Trailblazer wants you to do. And eventually we could kind of swap the underlying framework. So we could say, see you later Rails. And we were started using another framework called Grape. Um, my neighbor is um, <laughs> just walked up to my window. He wants to fix my roof or something. <laughs> um, so uh, we swapped the, the underlying framework with um, uh, uh, because Trailblazer allowed us to, to decouple all our logic from the actual framework. But we, we still use Trailblazer in a, in a React backend, basically. So that's uh, answering your question, I hope. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was actually wondering who, who's it's sort of related to that. Is, is there a specific intended audience for your book, Trailblazer? Or is it just for anybody who might be interested in learning the framework? Um, I was... Um... I didn't really know who's uh, who's supposed to be the audience, and when I started writing the book, <clears throat> um, it turned out that my audience or the audience for Trailblazer is all levels of uh, developers. We had people who've been around for fifteen years uh, checking it out and using it or not using it. We've had people who just started Ruby five days ago and they were intrigued by the idea of layering. And you know, just because there's more technical complexity doesn't mean that it's more complex. The opposite is the case. So we had, um, and, and the book tries to tries to um, um, propagate that on every uh, of the 308 pages. So we 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 talk, we're walking people stepwise to 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 um, master the technical complexity, as people call it. But technical complexity doesn't mean it's it's harder to understand. The opposite. You have smaller objects, easy, uh, nicely layered um, implementation um, components that, that make it easier to understand how software works and not harder. So the audience, and it's, it's really interesting. If you're on the Trailblazer Gitter channel, you will have people from all kinds of... Um, companies from all kinds of environments. It's, it's really interesting. So we don't have an, an audi a real audience, uh, um, like a, a target audience. We try to target everyone. And that's working uh, when, I, when I check the book and the readers, there's all kinds of readers, which is great. Yeah, I was going to ask my next question was, your book's been quite successful. Um, and I was wondering if there's anything special that you did in order to achieve that. Just, you know, obviously, besides 
writing a really good book and having having the existing community already on GitHub. Was there anything else that you that you did to promote it? Yeah. Just in case you didn't notice, I have the coolest book cover in the world. And the cartoons <laughs> too. So who did who did the art for the cover and the cartoons inside? There is um, an artist. His name is uh, Josh Borman. He's uh, American, but he lives in Berlin, and he's he's one of uh, the best friends of, of one of my oldest friends. And they're both artists, and they share the same um, studio in Berlin. And I was originally asking my, my best friend, but he was busy, so he told me um, to get in touch with Josh, and this was just the best thing ever. Like We, we would start with uh, little emails. He would send me scribbles and stuff, and uh, the outcome was that we have... <laughs> the best book cover, in my opinion, and lots of cool illustrations in the book, and uh, stickers, and you know this. Uh, his uh, style is so uh, it just fits the whole Trailblazer project. So that was a lot of fun. Um, but I, I don't think the book cover is um, actually what makes people buy the book. I think it's more <laughs> driving more people away because it looks really unprofessional. <clears throat> um, the thing is, I have a lot. Um, I have a. Um, I have a huge community of people using one or two of my gems and those people were excited when they heard, okay, there's some umbrella project starting. And um, I think that's um, what makes people buy it. And the other thing is we haven't really started any marketing campaigns. So I think we could do way better, but um, I'm pretty sure that LeanPub has a lot of tips and pointers for um aspiring authors how to sell their books <laughs> in a more successful way <laughs> yeah it's, it's i mean it's a bit of a dark art right but um you know one of the things we've noticed is that um uh already having a community around built around the subject um that you're writing about is is a really important um uh, factor in that um and actually on that on the note about the community of people who bought your book and and, and the trailblazer group more generally um one thing i noticed is that on your landing page for your Leanpub book, you have a little note saying, email me for a 50% off coupon. Um, if you're in a country where, you know, the U.S. exchange rate, U.S. currency exchange rate is really expensive. And I was wondering, did people ask you for that? Or is that something that you just sort of wanted to do on your own? Um, in both. So I, I got a lot of emails from people saying, hey, man, I really want to read your book, but I live in, I don't know, Ukraine or in Poland or not Poland, but um, Brazil. And uh, $39 um, is equal to what I earn on in three days or something or my lunch in a week. <laughs> so I, Because I don't have the currency exchange rates uh, on top of my head. <laughs> I'm not a um, hedge fund banker. So... Um, <laughs> So um, that made me think of, you know, I got so many, like not so many, but let's say two or three people per week asking me. And so it's, I don't have a problem. I don't do this for money. I, I do this so people have happy software architectures and go home happy. And of course, some dollars is nice. So I put this on, um, on the page. And since I put this note on the page, it has uh, increased. So I get, I get even more emails from people asking me, hey, please, I'm from Vietnam. I can't afford this. This is like uh, seven, seven lunches. <laughs> um, can I get some, can I get a coupon? So it kind of works and it's pretty, it's pretty cool actually because I can totally see that people in the US don't mind 39 bucks or people in Australia because I mean, a six pack of beer in Australia is $20. So <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, but if you live in a, if, if the exchange, exchange rate is, is not that good, um, you have to help them. I mean, I, I don't know about the plans of LeanPub. Are there going to be um, different pricing uh, tiers for different countries or? 
Yeah, it's interesting. We've 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 kicked that idea around. I mean, like we so we try to do things that let authors have as much like um control as possible in shaping like in deciding how their book is 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 sold and presented, right? And so like I mean, we have like for example, we're based in Canada, but we have to charge VAT for our EU customers, and so then that's tricky because like we have this minimum and suggested price and then, you know, but then VAT gets tacked on. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a nice happy like $9 or $19 as your book minimum price, then it turns into like $26 and 40 cents in, you know, <laughs> in the EU or in random EU countries have all their different prices. Right. And so we were thinking, Hey, should we allow authors to say my book is this price in the EU or Hey, my book is this price in like, Western world, but cheaper, say, in, like, developing countries, or, like, and so it was interesting for us to see this, because it was like, hmm, maybe there's, maybe this should be a larger feature. I mean, we, the flip side is, is that one thing we don't like is the idea that the world should be split up and only, books should only be available in certain, we like the idea that you publish a book on LeanPub, it's available in the whole world, as opposed to, like, lots of publishers don't even make their books available in lots of countries, right, and so, we want to make sure our books are available everywhere. And yeah, I mean, like we thought about pricing or about like, we want to, I mean, yeah. So we were, we're exploring the idea as a short version. Yeah. But we were curious. Yeah, to I can, I can totally see how hard it is because you don't want to, you don't want to make it a regional localized. I mean, if you start doing like, where are you from uh, Ukraine? Okay. Your price is this and that. I mean, this makes it a bit odd. And it, it as you said, it splits it into, and people get areas. people get upset because they're on a VP. So, so someone's like, "Why did the price change?" And it's like they were on they were in an incognito window on a VPN, and they saw one price because we thought they were in the U.S. And then they went to the checkout page, and we realized, "Oh, you're in Ukraine," and so we, we stick or or you're in yeah. like England, and so we stick on the VAT because we have to charge it based on two of three criteria. And then it's like, "We're well, no, we're not changing the prices. This is just VAT being applied." But people, if they think that things are moving under their feet, they get really upset, like sometimes, right? Like, and so it's like, and we're, I mean, we're busy, like just we're, you know, sometime in the next few weeks, we're going to be shipping our new storefront, which has like, which will handle this a bit nicer, I think. And so it will it'll avoid some of these problems around VAT when it gets shown. But, but yeah, I mean, like basically people want to think that the price is fair, regardless of where they are. And so, um, yeah, and it's a really interesting yeah. For me as well, because one of the things that we try, we, that's very important to us is establishing a connection between an author and a reader, right? And the sort of like choosing how much to pay is one of the sort of cool ways that that starts to happen on LeanPub. Um, but so I would, I would really like, I was just, it made me happy when I saw mm -hmm. your little note, like email me for a coupon for half off if this <laughs> is too expensive. It was just great. And on that note, um, in your book, you actually ask people, you, 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 you suggest to people that they can, they're free to email you anytime. Um, and you and you said earlier in this interview that you um, you know when you got in, interested in programming, partly it was feedback from people and getting things out there that that helped encourage you. And and um, I was wondering if you've been emailed by readers asking you questions about the book or asking you to add things or I don't know even typos or anything like that. Oh yeah, yeah. So the, in the early days, especially before I um, published the book, so what was interesting was, and that's one of the many reasons I love LeanPub is. I could um I could publish on a publish I could um 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 put, push out my my book without being finished and people would start reading it I had I had 
more than 500 readers before the book got published, and that was great. And um, because they they actually because it was not published, they would they would I don't know it was a different thinking. Now it's published. Now I have less feedback via email. I have more feedback on the official chat channel. But before it was published, <clears throat> people would really email me, and I had so many people telling me, "Hey, this page, you have uh, this and that syntax error, or um, that is uh, we don't understand what you're trying to say with your uh, semi English." <clears throat> and um, also lots of people asking me, um, "Hey." Um, so you said I can email you. So sorry for being blunt and emailing you, but is it? Do you think it's a good idea to use Trailblazer like this and that in our current company? So actually, people use that a lot, and I don't know if it's related to the publishing or to the to the chat channel we have now, because now most people just join the chat, chat channel, and there's um, it's incredible to see the activity on this channel. It's so good to see that your stuff is actually being discussed by people other than yourself. <laughs> Um, so I think um, people still um, feel the search to participate in, uh, in, in discussions with the author and other people, but now they use more um, the, the official channels. But I still get lots of emails uh, of people uh, telling me, hey, by the way, thanks for writing this book, which is awesome. Like, I mean, I haven't had that in 10 years. Like, I've been doing open source for 10 years, and you get an email every year. Someone says, hey, thanks for that gem. And now you get lots of people supporting you and telling you that they like the book or they find chapter seven pretty great, but chapter three sucks, which is still better than no feedback at all. So yeah, it's, well, it's, it's I mean, incredibly it's cool. It's funny. I found that with my first book, Flexible Rails, when I found that basically the better and the longer the book got, the less feedback I got. Like I found that some of the most, the book ended up being over 500 pages, but I, tried, I found I got the most feedback when it was a couple hundred pages and I had like real inflection points like I had to decide should I put rest in the book or not I mean this was back in 2006 right so you know um yeah I found that when if people see that you're making this effort and there's a and a community actually forms around the book then you can get really good engagement from readers it's really cool so yeah I just um I actually have just one more just one more question um and it's when you were using LeanPub or when you're still using LeanPub um is there any one thing that if you could have your kind of dream feature for us to build or dream problem to fix, um, what would that be? And um, so um, the in the process was already pretty cool when I started, and I think I think we uh, I think was it Peter and I I think someone kept helping me when I had questions because you have this helpful like chat to one of our people uh, a dialogue thing, so a lot of problems got sorted by that. My dream feature would be positioning images in uh, flow text because that's what I had to do really awkwardly with um, you know like you have to preview and ah shit it's the resolution is fuzzy or whatever or blurry and then you like I had to play a lot with um, width settings so if you had some way to position that in a in a uh, what you see is what you get edited or something I don't I know it's terribly it's a terrible hard feature to ask for <laughs> Um, but that was the only real problem I had was um, position. It wasn't even a problem. Like I, ju I would just use like float left uh, with thirty percent or something, and it'll work. But um, it took me like an hour or something to figure that out when I had the f had that problem the first time. Other than that, um, I don't know. I'm more than happy with how LeanPub works. It's an incredible. I mean, and it also it's bringing this whole publishing thing to a new level. Like I don't know. Um, I don't know how many new authors LeanPub has created in the last five years or how, or how old is LeanPub? 
Uh, we just turned six. We launched oh. in April 2010. So yeah, we're in Happy we're in grade birthday. one now. So yeah, I felt like we need a cake or something. Um, so uh, so yeah. Well, thanks thanks very much. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to? Is there anything you in particular wanted to talk about or say before we before we go? Um, uh, how, about, uh, how many people work for Leapup? I'm just interested in the how the company looks like. Is is it five? Five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is great. We're a cute little bootstrap startup, but yeah, we're we're self funded and we've you know we've been at this for a while and we I mean we're we're all, we're technical book authors right so we built LeanPub basically like myself and Scott founded it and then Len and other people joined and we're trying to create the best way in the world to write publish and sell books right and we've been to date focused so much on the writing and publishing aspect and that the selling and community stuff is underdeveloped. But where you know where we're going is we're going to be doing a lot of work around that. So we're really interested in how the, in how books like yours have um, have evolved and what like where we could try to improve things in terms of community or in terms of mobile. Like right now, for example, we don't even have an Android app, but like that'll change. Um, you know, reading on iOS will get better. But yeah, no, we're we're really excited about where you know, we've Ooh. seen like thousands of authors use LeanPub and. Yeah, million, I mean, I know. Of world, so I'm super happy about how it's gone. I, I know so many people who started writing on it. Um, I think uh, when it comes to community, um, I think um, it's wiser to integrate existing stuff, you know, like Gitter, uh, as um, trying because you you still have this comment on this book or something. Right. No one. I mean, you don't even see that it's kind of like there. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I have like three comments. Yeah. So I think it's more. Um, yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I think uh, integrating existing communities is um, the way forward. Great. Um, oh, by the way, um, one feature uh, would be cool um, to have uh, testimonials sortable. Oh, like like manually ordering them? Yep. <laughs> okay, that's a good feature. Yeah, okay. right now it's kind of <laughs> random. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Right now, right now it's right now it's sought by uh, order by created at. I yeah. guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We as in we didn't do anything, and that's what you get. You well, know the, exactly. The feature, is, the feature itself is great. Like it's it's so much more um, authentic, genuinely. When you when you have like photos and people are like, hey, we use it and it's great. Oh, we read it. So that's a cool feature. Great. Keep it coming. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thanks very much. I mean, this is obviously motivation for us as well. And um, just before I go, I wanted to say. I think you're the sixth Australian I've interviewed for these podcasts, and but the first without an Australian. Well, yeah, but, but yeah, that's right, that's right, um, uh, <laughs> and uh, and yeah. So I just wanted to say, um, you know, I just wanted to remark upon that. It's really interesting that some of our more successful authors have, have there's this cluster who are uh, living in Australia or come from Australia. It must be the um, the environment, the blue sky and the sun. So we don't want to go out because it's too dangerous. Uh, you get sunburned and all that right. kind of stuff. You have to do outdoor activities. We don't like that, so we go yeah. home and write books. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Nick. We really appreciate it, and thanks for being on the Lean Pub podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Thank you guys for having a, for making a Lean Pub. It's it's a great thing to do. Everyone should be using Lean Pub. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Thanks. Thank you.